HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Organic Grower School, offering a holistic crop management series for farmers starting on March 23rd. Learn more at organicgrowerschool.org. You're listening to Fields, the podcast with Melissa Metric and Wythe Marshall. On Fields, we bring you stories about the future, present, and past of urban agriculture. And in general, explore really interesting concepts and meet lots of fascinating people who get up every day and grow food in and around cities. Starting with the city we live in, New York City. Moreover, we'll investigate all the whys behind getting up in the morning and working as a farmer today. You don't need to be a farmer to enjoy this podcast or even a foodie. We're going to tell fascinating stories and break down the realities and possible futures of urban farming to their elements, examining each in turn. I'm Wife Marshall. I'm here with Melissa Metric and our expert (laughs) guest, Andrew Demler of Big Tech's Urban Farms. And we're really excited to talk about what's going on in Dallas. So I was there earlier in the spring, and it'll be nice to catch up and, and hear what's happening since a few things have changed since I last saw you, Drew. <laughs> no doubt, right? Yeah. And I was hoping you and Melissa could kind of talk about, you know, what, what it's like to be in charge of a farm right now, you know, in charge of gardens and, and teaching people and working with them. So we've heard a little from Melissa in the past couple episodes, and, you know, just thinking this would be a good chance to compare notes and hear how people are adapting what they're up to, uh, given, you know, the, the new normal. But to kick us off, yeah, Drew, do you, do you mind, can you give us kind of an introduction, the official word, you know, uh, what are you up to down there? And, uh, and yeah, how'd you get into it? I guess that's kind of always my, my first question. Sure, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm Drew Dimler. I'm, my official title is as the director of horticulture for this great state fair of Texas. If you haven't, if you're not too familiar with it, it's one of the biggest carnival shows in, in the world. Um, just this past year, we had over two and a half million visitors over a 24-day stretch. And uh, we estimate that my greenhouse, which is sort of the focal point of our farm anymore, had about 300,000 visitors through in that time frame. So it's a, it's a monumental event. My original job at the fair was strictly ornamentals. We did ornamental horticulture. I grew palm trees and bougainvillea hanging baskets and everything, just trying to make the grounds more beautiful. And then that changed pretty quickly in 2016 when we created a project called the Big Tex Urban Farms. And it's changed quite a bit even since then. We had three modest beginnings. We, we grew vegetables on an asphalt parking lot in these little raised planter beds. And we still do that. We did that all of 2016 with the idea of donating the produce. So we actually donate 100% of the produce that we grow to different nonprofits in Southern Dallas. Um, in Southern Sector Dallas, which is a USDA certified food desert. And that's actually what our program was initially designed to do. We tried to help get some, get some fresh food out into some neighborhoods where we could. Flash forward to 2017, we met the, the group from Hort Americas, who just happens to be like kind of in our backyard. So I got to meet Chris Higgins and, and his great crew, and they helped us get into hydroponics inside of this really great greenhouse facility that we had. And uh, ever since we, we did that, we built that first deep water culture pond in 2017, right before the state fair. We've steadily been filling up my 7,200 square foot greenhouse with one system after another after another. 
And now we have like this kind of really great ensemble of different types of hydroponic grow systems in that space. So we get to trial a lot of different things and see a lot of different systems and kind of the inner workings of, of how they operate and learn a lot, make a bunch of mistakes, right? <laughs> Along the way, man, we've, we've just kind of added a lot of educational layers to our farm. So now we, well, we used to give a lot of tours, <laughs> not, not, not so much right now uh, with all the, the quarantine business, right? But a lot of touring and a lot of just different educational programming that comes along, everything from summer camps to working with lo- some of the local colleges and universities. So that's sort of us in a nutshell. Yeah, that, that's great. Drew, was it kind of hard to switch from just growing ornamental to growing more edible crops? Like, was it a whole kind of learning process? and or, or did it seem kind of easy since you already knew how plants worked and how they grew and things like that? It was, I'll say this, it was definitely a learning curve. I knew how to grow vegetables already, but not on the kind of scale that we started growing them once we started the farm. So there is definitely a learning curve for sure. And it was even more of a steep learning curve for the rest of my crew. Because I had at least some experience, um, but the rest of my guys, three three other guys who work with me, Baron, Rob, and Ford, got to get their names in, right? And they really didn't have a lot of experience growing veggies. So that first year in particular, we learned a lot. We learned about how our boxes worked and what we were going to be able to grow in a hot asphalt parking lot in Dallas, Texas. And uh, and honestly, we've just been learning ever since. So it was, I wouldn't say it was a tough transition because it was a fun transition, right? Like we really loved what we were doing and, and getting to do something new and learn something new is always very exciting for me. And I, I definitely think for the rest of our guys, but definitely a bit of a steep learning curve, which kind of continues to this day. Now with the, we're still learning still have a lot to learn about the hydroponics, in particular our buying crop systems there. We're learning as we go for sure. Right. And could you walk us through this kind of, uh, you know, Melissa and I always like to do the like tour the farm through through your eyes, you know, your voice, because it is, it's a really interesting space. It's a big greenhouse in the middle of just this huge asphalt sea filled with stuff, buildings and booths. And then inside you have all these different pieces. I mean, it's not like it was built, purpose built for what you're doing now. You sort of inherited different um infrastructure and then people it seems like have given you some some really nice stuff so you have like a mix of older and newer equipment um and you're it seems like you're growing every possible way that you can grow in a greenhouse or a, or a vertical system and you know i i don't know can you kind of walk us through some of the features and some of the things you're doing and, and how you sort of got to that point absolutely man i love that question that's great so we have uh we started out with a 30 by 14 roughly foot deep water culture pond that we use to grow, you know, greens and leafy greens and herbs. And then we started out with six of the vertical tower garden units, the same ones that Stephen Ritz uses in the, in the Bronx um, is kind of made famous, the exact same units. So we started, that was our start. We were really, really impressed with the deep water culture pond, you know, how much productivity we were able to get out of that thing in such a small space. So we built another one. So I have a second, even larger pond now. That one's like 44 by 14, roughly. And we knew we wanted to continue to expand. We had the the chance to become an exhibit for the State Fair of Texas in 2018. So we knew we we really needed to fill that room up. So we fleshed it out. We did a Dutch three-row Dutch bucket system that we used to grow vine crops. We've been doing a lot of cucumber production in that lately. And then we did NFT. We knew we needed to have NFT because that's such an, another very popular way to grow. And it's a great, it's a good way to grow. So now I have two, I have a small scale, what I think of as like almost a homeowner size NFT system. And then I have a much larger system on the other side of the room. Then we added several grow racks so we could do demonstrate microgreens production. And one of them is kind of my baby plant production nursery for all of the, the different hydro systems. And last but not least, I think we started a gutter and slab system, you know, also for use in, in fine crops, which is sort of like Dutch bucket 
a lot of the, the growers who were using Dutch buckets are now going to this uh, slab system because apparently they're getting a little bit more productivity out of them. We love it so far. Can you explain that a little bit more? Because I actually haven't heard of that. I know the Dutch okay. bucket. I know like the deep water culture. I know nutrient film technique, the NFT systems. But what is, what is, can you just explain that? So there are these stands that look like rain gutters. And there's long slabs of rock wool that you place on top of them. And the, it's contained in, in a bag. And you, poke, you literally cut drainage holes in the bottom of the rock wool slabs. Um, and then you just run a drip irrigation to each grow spot. And then as it's, uh, the excess water just goes through the bottom of the, the rock wool slab and into these drainage holes in this quote unquote gutter <laughs> that it sits on top of. And that gutter runs it to a collection pipe and the collection pipe runs it back to the reservoir. So that's how that system works. And one thing that I'm, I'm kind of proud of when we built that system, just as kind of our own little innovation and twist on it. The reservoir that we use to power those gutter systems, we put a, a marine plywood lid on the top of it and literally drilled holes. And we grow in Dutch buckets on top of our grow reservoir now too. So I know that's a little hard to visualize. Maybe we can figure out how to upload systems, but it was just our uh, upload pictures rather, but it's just a way that we were able to take advantage of what would have been a waste of space. So, like, I have a big reservoir that we built behind our uh, Dutch bucket systems, which is what I've seen. Like, there's usually a removed reservoir where you do your your nutrient management and you know whatever you need to do with your with your water in your different circumstance. And then there's the grow space. Well, in this case, we wanted it to be kind of all in one. So, my reservoir, which is where we amend the water to grow these vines also serves as grow space. So it's like just trying to take advantage of every square inch, you know, we call it the franking system. <laughs> yeah. It looks really full. Like coming in, it was really impressive, like the variety and the variety of crops. Um, and I could see how that is like engaging to someone who's not in the business, but can you say a little about that? Like your role in the state fair? Cause the state fair I mean, I don't know that much about it. I'm not, you know, from Texas, I've heard of it, but it's, it's, it's like a, a mix of lots of different things. And it was interesting to me when I, when I first, you know, met you and heard that what you were doing, it's like, oh, that's like an attraction. Like, how is that, you know, working within that culture of kind of whatever the typical activity at the state fair is, you know what I mean? Like, how do you get people through the door? How do they respond? What are the things they kind of light up, you know, for people who aren't normally talking about greenhouses, you know, right. attracts them. That's a good question. I don't know what it is. I think it's just so out of place that people are like, what the hell is going on in there? You know, like I literally think that's what, what happens because to paint the scene, one of our most iconic rides is, is called the Texas Star. It's a Ferris wheel. And my greenhouse is literally right next to it. So we have this big iconic ride. We're like in the shadows of it. And then right out in front of my greenhouse it's called it's an area called the funway where it's like games everything that my greenhouse is not right so like they're selling cotton candy and beer and you know everything deep fried and corn dogs and whatnot and i, I think people just stroll by i mean the midway is packed every day anyway um, and i think people just walk by and they're like what is going on in there and so so another thing i should add like i have clear glass all the way across the front of my greenhouse so you can see right into it and see what's going on. And I, I literally think a lot of people just walk by, you know, they're on the way to go ride the, the Ferris wheel or get on the carousel or whatever. And they see cucumber vines growing or these lettuce heads. And they're like, what in the world is going on in there? And then they come in and then they just get really interested, you know, and we end up answering a ton of questions during the fair about what we're doing how we're doing it, you know, I mean, some people just, it's, it's like alchemy or something we're doing it there, right? Yeah, it seems like it actually, in a strange way, really does fit because it's almost like its own show in itself. And then the other thing that I was thinking of was maybe the parallel, I mean, I've never been, but to Disney, because Disney has this whole like hydroponic setup, right? I mean, I've never That's been there, so I don't know. might be... Yeah, we, we get that comment a lot. A lot of people tell us that. I think it's called The Land, and it's in Epcot. And a lot of people tell us that, like, who come through, who visited that. They're like, this is very similar to The Land in Epcot, which I've never been either. I've, I've 
had some conversations with some of their employees before, but one of these days we need to go down there, right? Go pick their brains a little bit too, see what they're doing. Yeah, definitely. And and how it fits into the theme. Because I think, as I understand the Epcot attraction, it's a lot about like space or the future and integrating. It's that Stuart Brand era of like catalog, uh, the whole earth catalog, you know, and, and how is yeah. technology going to enable us to coexist with nature differently or better. Um, and I think what you're doing in a way is like an update. Like it, it, it's, it seems to be like more a practical example of like, okay, in the 2020s now, um, you know, here's something that actually could work. You could have a greenhouse growing a bunch of food I'd be curious to hear more about like, where does that food go? And what is the purpose from the state fairs point of view? Because right, they're subsidizing it, right? I mean, you're not selling yeah. food. So it's Absolutely. not the same pressures as a commercial greenhouse, but you're doing a valuable work. So I mean, you know, could you say a little bit about how you see your, some of your work fitting into kind of the, you know, the scene there and, and some of the value you're providing beyond that, like, wow factor for the fair? For sure. Yeah. So, so we farm, you know, we farm in that building in our green and outdoors too, year round. 100% of the produce, as I mentioned earlier, gets donated. We were working with eight different groups, nonprofit groups in Southern Dallas, all of which have some angle attached to it centered around food insecurity issues. And we're able to contribute, I mean, to, to each of them on a weekly basis. Like our original partner, we donate actually twice a week, every Tuesday, every Friday. They do a free farmer's market right in the middle of this neighborhood called uh, Mill City which is classic, which is what you see everywhere, what you hear at the stories. You know, there's beer joints, there's fried chicken joints, there's every kind of fast food restaurant. Nobody's selling fresh produce in this neighborhood. So we started doing these pop-up markets right in the middle of this neighborhood at a Rex, at a local uh, recreation center. It's a really great, wonderful, holistic program type place that, the, that they have called the Juanita Craft Rec Center. That consistency of being able to put the greens and just letting people in that neighborhood know we're going to be there every Tuesday and every Friday. You know, I think that's been real important to our mission, that, that consistency. And honestly, the hydroponics is what allowed in that greenhouse is what allowed us to have that consistency. And to answer the other side of the question, we definitely want to say like the, the state fair has, they've been so supportive of this initiative. And I think we, we bring value to the company in community goodwill, if that makes sense, through the work we've done. And we've been able to, to work with a number of different other nonprofits now. We do summer camps for uh, South Dallas youth now. Um, so yet the young kids are able to come out and learn a little bit about what we're doing. We always have them harvest potatoes with us. It's one of the activities and they love it, man. Through giving the, the company programming and then also giving them a tourist, almost a destination spot for our board members or the higher ups if they want to, sh you know, they like showing us off a little bit. I think that's, that gives them a, enough value to, to make it worth our while for sure. Yeah. And it also seems like, you know, there's actual value to it. You're really doing some good work in, in communities. Yeah, we've, uh, we've definitely taken it a step further than just the food. Another thing that we do, we go out and help other groups start gardens of their own. In fact, uh, tomorrow I'm going to meet a gentleman, socially distanced, of course, but luckily you could do that in a garden pretty good. We're going to kind of chat with him about starting a garden, and, and it's an area of South Dallas called Oak Cliff, where he's starting a garden attached to a church. So we're going to kind of go and see what he's up to and kind of give him some advice and see how we can help him. How do you have time for all this? I don't know, man. I, there's definitely times like when I think, okay, I've stretched myself to the utmost limit. I can't do, I can't take anything else on. And I don't know. I, I honestly, I don't. And, but it's, we, we keep, we keep figuring it out, you know, like we, we keep figuring out, okay, you know, maybe take a little bit less of this and do more of that. And just kind of, I'm a good juggler, I guess. <laughs> yeah. It's a real skill to you know, like green, greenhouse management. I mean, you're not just growing the food on a schedule, harvesting, you know, delivering, but you're working with all these different groups and stakeholders and teaching different kind of levels of, you know, kids or just, you know, informing people stopping by. So it's definitely a real, real juggling act. And yeah, it's, it's really impressive what you've done in, in that community in a short time. I mean, I remember you were saying, yeah, a lot of this is through churches, right? Like helping churches start gardens is a way to get yeah. different people engaged um, who maybe, you know, want that resource. Um, but it's a little different than if you came in and, and had a for-profit farm or we're doing it all, um, you know, centralized in your greenhouse. 
So can you talk about a little about, I don't know, just, you know, the, the experiences you've had going out and sort of seeing Dallas and these little slices where you're helping people with their local, you know, community garden. I imagine you just must get to know just a lot of the city and the people, what they're growing and all that. You do. It's a, it's a real tight knit community for sure. It's, man, it's been really exciting. Now there's been successes and failures, you know, um, some of the groups that we, we get behind and, and we, we help them get up started and they think they're going to have the resources and, and so forth to, to continue on. And sometimes it doesn't work out. But most of the ones that we have helped start over the last few years are still growing. And that's one thing that I, I tell everyone going into it is that, you know, gardening in Texas is largely about resilience, <laughs> you know, because you're going to have a ton of hardships and things are gonna, aren't always going to go so perfectly well. And you just have to kind of weather that storm. For the most part, most of the gardens are, are doing pretty well. So I'd, I'd love to see that. It's one of the most rewarding things that we do is getting other people to, to start out. It's great. Can you say what makes a difference in terms of a garden's likelihood of like continuing on? I mean, is there anything clear that, that you feel like you should, you know, if you're thinking of working together to start a community garden, like keep in mind? Well, there's, there's two things. Number one, I think, if, especially if this is something that's new, if you didn't, if you haven't done a lot of gardening, don't bite off more than you can chew. So you can start small, you can always expand. And then the other thing is, I, I think people need to be realistic about the, the man, manpower demands. You know, that this is something you're going to have to have at least a handful of people to help out who are committed to helping out. Because these plants don't take a break, go on vacation, and no one's there to water them. Everything's going to die if you don't have some backups. You know, so you, you've got to have committed people who are willing to be there year-round. And I, I think that's, that's been the biggest difference maker for us, you know, and the ones that succeed and the ones that fail. The ones that succeed, they have people who are willing to be out there putting the work in all the time, all year long. And then the ones that ultimately usually fail, that's what happens. You know, everyone's, everyone loves it for a, few month, for a month or two in the spring when it's nice and then it gets hot in August and no one wants to be out there watering plants and harvesting over anymore. So that's, that's really it. I, I really think that's the, the biggest key is just personnel consistency. So you, you got to make sure you have the, the right number of people who are buying in. Yeah. And it sounds like you also have a conversation with these groups about that, just in the sense of like, listen, you're going to have to keep watering. You're yeah. going to have to keep working on it. Like I, I teach a class, I teach a gardening class and that's like the first thing that I ask my students. Okay. You're going to design a garden. Who's going to take care of it? A lot of times people just don't, don't necessarily realize how much work goes into a, a garden initially, you know, if they've never done it before. And then also, like even some people who've done it, maybe grown a couple of tomatoes in their backyard, it's still a very different when you're going to grow, you know, hundreds of tomato plants like you would in a, in a decent sized community garden. That's still a very different endeavor, you know, than even if you do have some experience, it's, it's that scaling up is, is tough to, to figure sometimes. So in terms of scaling up, I was actually curious because we, we didn't go into it in much detail earlier, but you know, how did you go from um, what you're doing before to, because those mobile planters, you, you built initially all these large mobile planters that were on the state fairgrounds before the greenhouse, right? And that alone was like a huge project. So how, you know, what, how, what was that like? Or how, what was your own personal journey to, to scaling up to first managing like essentially a, a really big distributed garden and then a greenhouse and now all of it at once, you know, all these things plus 17 other sites, you know, what, what is that process like for you? Because I, I think that's some of the stuff I'm interested in and this podcast is about, you know, how do you professionalize and, and do it? Man, so 2000, <laughs> 2016, we started with, we had 100 of those mobile planter beds. And the biggest, most important thing we did was create relationships that first year. You know, the yields were moderate or whatever. Um, towards the end of the season, the, the soil kind of got inoculated properly and things started growing better. So the donations picked up more and more towards the end of that first year. But that made that really good initial partnership with that rec center, the Wanting to Crab Rec Center, and also another church in the area called Cornerstone. Those were our two initial partners. And we're still still working with both of them. They said a lot of good things about 
they gave a lot of positive feedback about our program and how thankful they were to be able to get the, the fresh vegetables and how much it meant to their community members. And that was really the big key because the, the company realized, hey, we have a chance to do a lot of good with this little farm. So at that point in time, the hydroponic stuff still wasn't really on the radar. We did make the decision pretty quickly to up upsize what we were growing outdoors. So the biggest we got at one point in time was three quarters of an acre of concrete. So we had like 500 and some odd of those grow boxes, just row after row after row of them, right over in an area by the cotton bowl. Honestly, man, it was it was more than we could handle at that at that time. You know, based on the manpower that we had, along with all of our other responsibilities, it was really tough. Anyway, we we got to that size. That same year, we started learning about this thing called at first we wanted to explore aquaponics okay with the fish and how we could get into that and we we questioned and asked a lot of questions from different people in the area and they all said dude you don't want to do aquaponics they're like with everything else you have on your plate that's a nightmare waiting to happen so one by one we started learning about these different greenhouse projects that had happened around the city that where they were try aquaponics and one by one they, they just didn't work out. I think it's really hard to manage the water levels, nutrients and so forth with the fish and the heat is, is usually what, what we heard. But everyone told us they're like, but you should you should look into this thing called hydroponics, which is a little easier to dial in. And we think you should get started with that. So we were like, okay. And I really didn't know much at all about hydroponics. I, I knew the nuts and bolts and that it was growing plants and water aside from that i really didn't know anything but the company had given us a much bigger budget that year because we had good success in in our year one and that's when i learned about what hydroponics was And at the time i went and met with uh i don't know if you've ever met him a guy named tyler barris calls himself farmer tyler um and at the time he was running the horn america's demonstration greenhouse which is a little bit north of town and i went and visited with him and I saw his deep water culture pond. And I just fell in love with it. He was like, that looks simple. It looks like something I can manage. And it looks beautiful. I was like, that's what I want. So we built that first system. And I finished it literally right before the State Fair of Texas, like scrambling around trying to get this to be an exhibit. This episode is brought to you by Organic Grower School, offering a holistic crop management series for farmers starting on March 23rd. This holistic crop management curriculum and training opportunity is in partnership with Certified Naturally Grown. Growing a viable farm business is sustained by continuous learning of the land and your products. In this workshop series, growers across Southern Appalachia and beyond will gain tools to manage their crop production for whole farm success. Organic Grower School is offering the Holistic Crop Management Training as a six-part webinar series. It will include a mixture of videos, resources, and live virtual meetings between March 23rd and April 27th. Learn more, meet the instructors, and register now at organicgrowerschool.org. So before all this hydroponics fun that we have in that greenhouse now, during the fair itself, it was a model railroad garden. In fact, the same company that does the model railroad garden uh, at the Brooklyn, at the uh, New York Botanical Gardens, same company is the one that would, that would come and help us set this up, okay? So we have, this is 2017, by the way, our second year of operation. So that fair, we have, a model railroad garden, a guy carving giant uh, pumpkins on the weekends in the corner, and a hydroponic tank, and those vertical towers. It was crazy. You should have seen it. I'll have to send you some photos of this for sure. But man, the response we got from the public was unbelievable. Like people would just, we had it all tucked away in this one corner of my greenhouse. And it was like people didn't even really want to mess with the trains or any of that other stuff anymore they wanted to know what in the world we were doing in this corner in this greenhouse man and they would just ask question after question like what are you growing how are you doing this what's underneath there 
where's, you know, it was just question after question. And we realized at that point in time, we were like, and then that alone with how much produce we were able to produce, even just during that fair, like the system being brand new, we were like, oh, wow, man, we're harvesting this stuff every single week, every week, every week. We're like, oh, yeah, we need we need a lot more of this. Post-fair 2017, the company made a decision to allow, they wanted the greenhouse to be its standalone exhibit during the fair. And that would allow us to occupy that entire space for hydroponic production, you know, which is, it's twofold for us now, you know, it served as a great exhibit during the fair itself. And it's just, I mean, exponentially increased the amount of produce we're able to get out into the food desert. So yeah, man, it's been a big win-win. And kind of like I said earlier, we've just been slowly but surely filling that, filling that space up ever since. Yeah, I was disappointed that there wasn't the train still. You know, I know probably from a production standpoint, you don't need a model train to move, you know, lettuce <laughs> around and, and you got some nice peppers and cucumber. you know, you could, but you could also imagine the Epcot version where the train delivers it. Right. Wouldn't that be something? I was going to say, it makes some operations a lot easier, right? You know, like if I need to get something over there, I could just load some seeds onto the, the little trains and let them drive them on over there, man. That's the 4.0, the bringing it back, you know, the, the yes. throwback to, to your roots. Maybe we can do something up high, right? Maybe have like a floating train exhibit or something on, on, top, of, on top of our hydroponic systems. Oh, well, that's what they do at the New York Botanical Gardens. It's all like bridges and things like that. So Let me work on that. <laughs> yeah, you should get little micro drones and somehow incorporate them into this, you know, world of the future. Oh yeah, rebrand oh. the B word for for greenhouse. Well, that's super cool. I mean, yeah, I think I think the whole story is just so it's so unique. I mean, you, you don't often hear about a greenhouse that's not commercial and that's part of a state fair. Um, and yeah, so I can imagine why that's just like has an enduring appeal. But I'm glad. I mean, part of it I think is it's interesting you keep pushing yourself and adapting to go from uh, field to soilless. And yeah, to keep like adding components and, and tinkering um, and, and had success essentially with all of it. So, you know, working with people like Farmer Tyler, but I imagine a lot of it is just you and your team, like putting in a lot of hours and really learning the, the system. Yeah, just figuring it out for sure. And asking a ton of questions from everybody didn't run away from me. <laughs> Crazy. It, it really is. Why I tell you, if when we first started this project in 2016, if you told me what all was going to happen, I would have laughed you out of the building. And this is kind of funny. Anybody can tell you who knows me very well at all. Man, I've never made a, a plan in my life. Like I'm not a real rigid, strict person on anything. And I think that's kind of maybe played to our advantage. You know, it's just allowed us to to pivot very fluidly in some, some cases to where we've really kind of reinvented what kind of farm we are. And we've done it multiple times. It's just, it's crazy. <laughs> that's all I can say, man. It's nuts. Yeah, and it's rebranded Big Techs of it, too, in the process, right? Yes, absolutely, man. No doubt about it. That's part of it, for sure. Have you had to pivot a lot because of COVID and, and working within the greenhouse and then also have donations? Like, have you needed to donate more produce and things like that? Like, there's a bigger need and, and things. Can you talk about that a little bit? Most definitely. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up, too. I'll answer that in two parts. So, because... We work for a company. We have to kind of follow along by their guidelines and rules, right? And they're, they're doing their best. To, they're really doing a great job of trying to keep staff safe. So what they came up with for us, they are allowing us to continue to operate. But we basically work split shifts, you'll call it. So I have a, it's myself and my three full-time employees. So there's four of us total. No more than two of us work on a given day. We harvest everything into disposable, basically plastic bags, which I know it doesn't look real good, but it works great. Um, gloves and masks during all operations. And then we do interactionless donations now, where we set up times with the different groups and then we let them know ahead of time, hit them with a text, hey, we've got lettuce and collard greens coming. We'll be there in 15 minutes. And we literally pr- pretty much just drop it off at the doorstep it's been effective. Uh, there hasn't really been any, any hangups with that. Now, to the other part of the question, yes, the needs are extremely high, higher than ever down there in South Dallas, which is really unfortunate. We've partnered with uh, Texas A&M AgriLife, and they have an amazing uh, trial. It's all outdoor growing. 
um, but they have a really, really good trial garden program. And they're allowing, it was sort of the plan anyway, but they've, they've expanded on it even further where they've turned all of their trial plots into food production. All the food that they're growing, we go and harvest and it goes in, it feeds in our production system too, our, our distribution donation program. So we're, we're doing our best to just get as much of it out there as we can, because I know there's so many people who are out of work and this COVID thing, the quarantine, it's just kind of furthered the fracture in the food system for the residents of, of these zip codes in and around Fair Park where we're located, unfortunately. So yeah, man, it's uh, we're just getting it out as fast as we can, for sure. Yeah, I mean it's it's great that you're you're able to do that, and it is really unfortunate that yeah, it's COVID has exacerbated all these existing inequities and and pointed out even more you know fragilities in our in how we sort of take for granted you know cheap food from anywhere all the time. Some of us, you know, and yeah, I know there's people who are you're food insecure, but but yeah, it's great that, that you guys are doing that. Do you have? Is there any sense the state fair is planning on being open? Because it happens in, in uh, September, October, around then. We're still very much in just kind of a wait and see mode. I know everybody's like on pins and needles, and it's a tough spot that that we're in. That especially our higher ups who have to make these really tough decisions. I know that there's already been some cancellations on the the West Coast. Some of their events have already been canceled. I, I really don't think I, there's all kinds of ideas being floated around out there right now. And I know that our team is really, they're going to turn over every stone, so to speak, you know, and just explore every possibility to see if we can operate or or not. So unfortunately, right now, man, I think it's just sort of a wait and see mode. I mean, my mind boggles if it's that, you know, from the pictures I've seen and from your descriptions and, and the, the legend, if it's that packed, how do you have a medium density version of that? I mean, how do you tell people I not know. to to congregate and will they come? Will they be afraid? So, I mean, I think a lot of organizations are going through that, but since, since the state fair is driven by having a lot of people in one place, I can imagine you guys are particularly feeling that pressure, but yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess we'll just all cross our fingers that yeah, that Dallas, like New York, you know, hopefully rebounds and cur- curve, you know, flattens out and all that. It is great that they're still letting you operate though. And that you once again, like pivoted and figured that out. And maybe it's not as many people working in the greenhouse and stuff, but how you're still, keeping on with that mission like you're keeping going it's when people you know when certain communities need that food the most so it's great that like if the fair opens or not you're still keeping that critical kind of service that you're doing i'm so thankful to them for allowing us to continue to operate and realizing the value that we're bringing to the community down there right now i'm I'm so thankful for that i really am I am. Um, I'm curious about. We talked about this with with our the last couple interviews. You know, the the idea of people wanting to grow more at home. And since you're already helping people start gardens, and I know you said you know tomorrow you're helping plant another garden. But do you have any thoughts in general on this sort of trend of like more people being aware that like maybe long term, actually, hopefully long term, can grow more of our own food locally, and and what that might look like. One end of it is just you know individuals gardening at home, but I think there's lots of, there's a whole spectrum all the way to, you know, food hubs and collective distributed farms and whatnot. So just curious if you'd, you've had some experience here and have thought about, um, yeah, how to, how to keep this going or how to, you know, try to provide that level of support in addition to the donations, which yeah, are, are critical. All of it is great and needed. And I think this has really demonstrated certain areas, especially the great need that we do have for these urban ag projects, right? And yeah, it could be as simple as somebody growing their own microgreens at home or something that simple on up to bigger greenhouse projects and, you know, and urban farming projects to help out with food insecurity issues. And I definitely think we, we need more of it. I think this has really demonstrated that. It's a little bit tricky too, because I know there's a lot of people who are starting to grow for the first time. You love to see the enthusiasm, but then you need to be able to, to provide proper education to go along with that enthusiastic approach so that, so that can continue. You were talking about earlier about, you know, helping out these people start the gardens, which ones succeed, which ones don't, kind of on that same level. For sure. Do you have any advice? I mean, what would your uh, take, I mean, as someone who, who taught yourself in a way all these skills, what would you say to just people who are generally interested and they're getting going right now in the midst of this pandemic? You know, how do you How do you get started or what are common mistakes? I don't know. I'm just curious if there's anything that jumps to mind. For gardening, for people who want to get into gardening for the first time or or farming? 
Yeah, maybe both. I don't know. Melissa, do you, do you have further thoughts on this? I mean, it just occurred to me, you know, in a way we haven't, we haven't done much in terms of talking about practical advice. For both. I know that they're two different things because gardening is like small scale and that could mean what you're talking about, like just doing microgreens inside your house or a little like box outside in your backyard. And then farming is this whole other thing. But yeah, I mean, why not both? So let's start. Let's start small. We'll start with the gardening side. Recommendations. Don't start too big. You can grow as you learn. Be willing to educate yourself. Commit to education. That can be as simple as talking to your county extension agents. They're going to have a lot of experience and a lot of good advice, you know, wherever you are in the country. One thing I always recommend is find other gardeners in your area and find out what they're growing and what they've had luck with and what they don't. You will find that those people will love to share their information with you. We do this because we love it, right? We, I love to talk about plants. Just ask my wife. She'll tell you. <laughs> so I love it when people ask, you know, hit me up or ask me plant questions. So build your own, build a tribe, build a community. Last but not least, I would say have some resolve. Know that you're going to have failures. That's okay. The only thing that matters is that you continue to grow. Man, I mean, I tell everybody, I've killed so many plants in my day. It's, it's pathetic if you knew. I mean, it, we could fill up a whole graveyard full of the dead plants that I've, you know, all the mistakes I've made through the year. And that's okay because it's just another chance to learn and you plant another seed and, and away you go. So commit to doing this for a, a time. You know, give yourself a couple seasons, say, dead gum, it might be hot, but I'm going to get out there and water this pot <laughs> and then just continue on. Now, on the farming side, I think there's some real opportunities out there right now, probably maybe more than ever, for people that get into farming. If they have a financial plan makes sense to get into things like home deliveries. Why we've seen people like Jeff Bedner like transition their entire businesses on the fly and have good success doing that. And that's another one of those things that I hope will continue. I hope people will continue to, to pay more attention to where the food is coming from and remember the people who, who had their back during this tough time, you know, and kept providing that food for them. But I do think that there's, there's some opportunity out there right now Be, because the food system is so stressed out and so stretched that there probably is some, some opportunity for people to get into commercial farming. So if it's something that's been on your mind for a long time, you got to do your homework. 10 times over before you yeah, before you pull the trigger on getting into this because it, it's such a tough business. That being said, this is maybe as good a time as ever to to get into it if it's something that you're seriously considering. Yeah, and I think that's a, a great note about, um you know, so profound uh, micro farms and profound foods, the food hub, um, switching away from restaurant toward consumers uh, makes me think of here Farm One and Smallhold and other uh, vertical yeah. farms here that were restaurant focused and now they're switching to deliver to consumers and they've been able to keep going at least for now hopefully you know for the duration that that'll keep them afloat and i think it is interesting to think about the consumer side you know people caring about local food or, or viewing that option is, is really great and how much of that is from scarcity and how much is that they're realizing these options now exist so if there were more of them could that work and you know i was just reading civil eats just had a great piece on co-ops and, and i've seen this is like the 10th article i've seen like this it's like Co-ops are, are the only category that's not, you know, really hurting um, in terms of, you know, a market. And I think so much of that they're, they're saying is that co-ops can pivot. They're more adaptive. They're smaller scale. They're local. And people yes. are committed. Um, and so, yeah, I think, you know, could you put those two models together? You know, basically the, the food hub or food co-op with these local farms. Can you have networks where you're not all reinventing the wheel, but you're, you're able to reach, yeah, more consumers, do more contactless delivery and get local food out and, and make money doing it and keep yourself around. So I, I hope that's a luck to Bednar and, and the farms here that are doing it. And I'm sure there's lots of people around the world sort of exploring that right now. Definitely. You know, Jeff and I are both indoor growers, but I know there's a lot of outdoor growers who have made that transition too. And I've, I've heard good, good things about it. And also, I kind of wonder if this might be an opportunity for somebody like, like Jeff or farm one, if this could be like their chance to level up, right? Like maybe when, when this is all over, if they're still funneling in orders from homeowners, that would be tough to turn that down, right? They may have to expand their operation. And so then they can, they can handle, they can have like a home delivery section of their farm 
and a restaurant sales section. So it might be their chance to kind of climb the, you might see some ladder climbing going on during this time. We'll, we'll see. I'm really anxious to see what happens with that. Yeah, because I think people for a long time predicted like, oh man, these long supply chains and the oligopsony, you know, so the, the centralized buyers who buy everything, Kroger, Whole Foods, that this system sucks and it doesn't, it hurts the farmer and it hurts the end consumer. Yeah. It only is for stock prices. And it's almost like a what if, and obviously I'm, COVID's terrible, but it is like it's it's that lightning bolt that people have almost wished could, would happen that would show these flaws and allow a reorganization so that farmers could get paid better, consumers get better food. And it's almost like, man, maybe this is it. Is if we move away from the big chains, can we move more, you know, maybe not overnight to 100%, but can we shift that needle, that percentage towards CSAs and direct, you know, farm sales and food hubs? And yeah, now is the time, right? Now is an opportunity to just sh- shape things up and, you know, I don't know. Best of luck to anyone who's doing it. Yeah, it's, there's a lot to figure out. No doubt. I, I know it's a, it's a lot more uh, technology that's playing into it and people are having to build new websites to, to support their sales and everything. But again, I'm, I'm really thankful to see like this shift in consciousness that people are having around where their food is coming from. I sure hope it ends up being a, a benefit to the to the local farmers, the small farmers, because they, they sure deserve it, man. Those guys work so hard, you know, get, get provide food for us. That's just such a noble thing to do. Yeah, and I wonder, I mean, the consciousness shift, it's like we all complain about online life and everything being fractured and instant, and you can deliver yourself something by not without having to interact with someone. But then with COVID, it's like, oh, we need that. And I wonder if to some degree that shift, some like I know I've bemoaned in the past, um, is actually kind of good and then it opens up, it lets us rethink this basic other thing over here, you know, the food and ag system and some of the problems and the assumptions, the things we take for granted. And now it's like, well, we have the, the sort of Uber mentality or Amazon mentality. That idea isn't owned by those big companies. So if a, if a food hub can use that same idea and if, if the software exists, it's come down in price, whatever, I'm thinking of, you know, everything from like foodshed.io, working with small farms, and a lot of waste, you know, I know there's a lot of groups now looking at, at how to move waste around and, and really try to eliminate waste um, even before COVID and do this through apps, essentially, do the appification, you know, um, the, the, re, the smart, you know, real-time delivery mechanisms that, that we take for granted in other realms. It's like, let's apply that to food in a way that helps farmers and you know, they're not competing against, but is allowing them to thrive. It's happening. I know it. Isn't it great? It's so great to see that. Like you say, you don't, Obviously, this is a great tragedy for a lot of people, but let's make the best of it. You know what I mean? That's kind of my mindset about it. Let, let's let's see how we can we can use this to improve our ourselves and our our world. Kind of interesting because it seems like a companies are pushing themselves to be more sustainable in that yeah. sense of like you know selling like delivering to just private homes and things like that, and then in being a small company in general, how they have more of that flexibility kind of like what you're talking about, like starting out small and then also just being an entrepreneur, you're always going to have to change anyways, right? Like that's the one yes. about being an entrepreneur. Or that's one thing about being a grower. Being a grower is almost being an entrepreneur, right? Because it's like you're always going into these new things. You're always exploring these new techniques. You know, you're always having to change because you're dealing with this living organism. <laughs> it's always changing and evolving. And I love to hear you say that, man. That is so true. Very well said. <laughs> no doubt. It was great hearing the whole story, Drew. And, and also just like all the things that you're working on, how you got there, how you're constantly changing, all the communities that you're working with, and almost how like you, it sounds like you're really dealing almost like that village almost mentality. Like you're, you're dealing with all these different groups of people. You're all learning from each other and you're all kind of supporting each other. So that's yeah. nice to hear. Thank you. I really, really appreciate that big time. Thank you. Yeah, ditto. Um, thank you for, for joining us and sharing your vision. It's, it's really inspiring. What are models that are replicable? What's worked other one place that we could take somewhere else? So maybe there's another company out there, maybe not a state fair, but some other company with land that could just find one motivated grower. You know, who's the Drew Demler um, in, in that area who can take off and, and, and really work with local community and, and grow a lot of good food? So that's, that's, that's one takeaway I was thinking, like, man, why isn't this happening all over the place? You know, every stadium should have a greenhouse attached to it. I'm, man, I'm so glad you, you said that. And I'll let that maybe be my final thought. We still have plans to, we're going to do more. Um, we're, there's the thought we, we may be adding like a shipping container farm to our setup and, and we're going to do more. But 
outwardly, I want to help other state fairs and other big events develop programs like ours. I would love every state fair to have big techs, urban farms type situation. They don't all have to be greenhouses and so forth. I mean, some places may want to focus more on outdoor production, whatever. But I think we have a marvelous opportunity to educate and provide food. And I, I hope that we're going to be able to communicate with other and other big events too, like the Houston Rodeo, you know, maybe a group even like that or those types of big events would be interested in creating something like what we've done with the, with the State Fair of Texas. And if anyone out there is listening and they want to start their own program like this, please contact us. I'd be happy to help you any way that I can. Cool. That's, that's a great note to end on. Um, other than Googling Drew Demler, Big Tech's Urban Farms, what's the best way to get in touch? What's, what, what should people follow you on? Or My social media is probably the best way. Um, it's just my name on, on Facebook and, and Instagram both. It's just D-R-E-W-D-E-M-L-E-R. And then uh, I'm on Twitter occasionally, very occasionally, not so much. And that's uh, my handle on, on Twitter is Farmer Spaceman. Oh, man, Drew, why haven't we been calling you Farmer Spaceman this whole time? Uh, <laughs> you always get the best stuff last. Best stuff last. There you go. <laughs> well, thanks so much again. It's really great. It's always a pleasure talking to you. And, yeah, I'm really glad you're doing well and still growing. Man, I just want to say thank you both for having me on. I mean, this is just great to be able to come on and, and kind of tell our story. It helps our program out tremendously. I really thank you both for the time. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Drew. Thank you. Hope you enjoy it. Please get in touch, follow us, subscribe, and yeah, follow Drew on uh, on Facebook and Instagram and, and get in touch. And happy growing. Happy growing. Thanks so much to our brilliant guest, Drew Demler, and thanks to Nick Burton of Bootstrap Farmer Radio Network for putting us in touch. Fields theme music is by Sam Tyndall. Our amazing producing engineer at Heritage Radio is Liam Warner. This episode's music was composed by Liam Werner. Fields is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. <laughs>